BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get 150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms, 21 plus only. Virginia only, new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Let's give you something to worry about. It's Armstrong and Getty Extra Large. Because four hours simply isn't enough. This is Armstrong and Getty Extra Large. I don't know how many years in a row we've been checking in with Ian Bremmer to see what the biggest risks to the planet are, but we've been doing it for quite a while. I really only look forward to three things every year. Number one, two weeks off at Christmas. Number two, the Masters Golf Tournament. Number three, talking to Ian Bremmer the president of Eurasia Group, about the uh, global um, global risks list, the top risks of 2023, for instance. And uh, Mr. Bremer joins us now. Ian, how are you? Hey, happy new year. Good to talk to you guys. You know, this is a podcast, so if you have to use your salty language, you can. When we had you on the radio show once, you did drop an S-bomb. You're like a really filthy sailor who got a Ph.D. in poli-sci, but... Uh... <laughs> Kind of like a merchant marine. Exactly. Kind of like we that. both spent six months in FCC prison, Ian. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, you. <laughs> Meanwhile, I was in the Seychelles, so, I mean, you know. <laughs> That's oh, a win. Brother. So you can't do much better than your number one risk, and that is a rogue Russia. Explain that to us. Yeah. Well, I mean, the funny thing is the risk report has a whole bunch of things that are connected it's a bunch of individual leaders with a lot of power, surrounded by yes men, no checks and balances, and they can make really bad decisions. 
It's the Iranian leadership. It's the Chinese leader. It's the Russian president. And it's a bunch of tech founders uh, that have the same sort of challenges, even if indications are not as uh, momentous on the nuclear front. Putin's number one. It's pretty clear. And it's the worst decision that's been made by any leader on the global stage since the wall came down. And, and you know, it's basically he's not a chess player. He's a poker player. He made a big all-in bet on a bad hand, and he's gotten called, and now he's in very serious trouble. And he's not going anywhere. He's not going to be forced out of power. So the question is, as this war doesn't end, but as they can't win, what will Russia do as the most powerful rogue state globally? And that's a danger to all of NATO. Well, they are they are the biggest nuclear power on the planet, so the idea yeah. of them being you know beholden to nobody is pretty troubling. Yeah, and you know the funny thing is for me the nuclear weapons strike is the least of my worries because they you know the leader's not looking for Armageddon, but it's all the things he can do because he has those nuclear weapons. Mm. So, you know, fiber strikes, pipeline strikes, cyber attacks, espionage, disinformation. It's hard to imagine that Putin facing an expanded NATO a much stronger Ukraine and, and and feeling like he's losing the war because he's fighting NATO. Not He's not just fighting Ukraine. He's fighting all of that support is going to lash out against at least frontline NATO countries. And it's not like he's going to engage. He's not going to do ballistic missile strikes. But when he hits them with cyber and fiber and the rest, what and, and there are massive economic consequences of that and political disruption. What are they going to do to Putin? And the answer is they don't have much more they can do to Putin. Well, and what worries me is that uh, the old dodge of dictators and, frankly, democracies from time to time, too, is that if you've lost your legitimacy domestically, you will invent or exacerbate some foreign issue uh, so that the folks can rally around you. And Putin, as as you've indicated, has made such a horrific decision that ought to so diminish his legitimacy as a leader. I mean, he's going to have to take some extraordinary steps to get the the people to rally around him. In other words, he's going to have to cook up some pretty serious foreign conflicts. And he's done some incredibly unpopular things. I mean, his decision to call up an additional 300,000 reservists from the population and throw them into the meat grinder of the front line. We know there's been 100,000 Russian casualties in this war. So far, it hasn't even hit the one-year date and and not going to end anytime soon. Uh, You know, these parents are not going to be happy on the ground in Russia. The community is not going to be happy. So long-term, increasingly, people around Putin feel like dead-enders. They're folks that know that, you know, whatever they do, whether there's peace or whether there's war, they they end up in the Hague. And and that leads to bad decision-making. Hey, speaking of the folks around Putin, uh, we have come across quite a few accounts of the number of oligarchs and insiders who've uh, slipped on apparently the very, very slippery floors in in Russia and fallen out of windows, for instance, or committed suicide by shooting themselves 10 times. Um, Do you buy those reports? Is that stuff legit? You know, it's about 20 mid-tier oligarchs have uh, have jumped out of windows uh, probably already dead. Um, and, uh, you know, the funny thing, you kind of have to ask yourself, wh- why doesn't Putin just execute him? I mean, you know, everybody knows who's responsible for their death. I think, you know, maybe a taller dictator might feel more confident. <laughs> wow, now that's analysis. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, how much backing does Putin have from china at this point or early on you know they were kind of together on this but are they still 
early on, meaning before the war. Right. Remember, that, that big statement everyone talks about when he went to the Olympics, that was February 4th, 20 days before they started attacking. Um, China's not providing any military support to Russia, and Lord knows the Russians want it. They're also not breaking any American sanctions because they don't want secondary sanctions that hit Chinese companies. China's growth is not exactly staggering right now. Um, so the Russians are left with almost no friends. Keep in mind, when we were fighting the Soviets in the Cold War, the world was kind of divided in two. Europe was divided in two. Today, the Russians invaded Ukraine, and everyone is either with the West or on the sidelines. There's really the only people that are actively supporting Russia is Belarus, uh, which isn't re really a country at this point. Their United Nations mission actually is literally uh, co-located inside the Russian mission. It's kind of pathetic. Um, the, the North Koreans, who are providing ammunition uh, for the Russians, and when the North Koreans are the military support that you have, huh. let's face it, you're not doing that well. And then Iran, which is a rogue state uh, in harmony uh, with uh, the Russians, providing a lot of drones and probably ballistic missiles. And that is a danger. But that's about it. That's all the Russians have at this point. So they're really isolated. And you'll remember in Bali, about a month and a half ago, we had the G20. The Russians didn't even show because they knew they were going to be isolated. Putin didn't want to be embarrassed. Hey, I know this is the global risks for 2023 and not for the next 15 years, but um, the, the question of succession in Russia fascinates me because anytime you got an oligarch like Putin who's so, you know, gathered the power to himself personally, what the hell's the future going to look like when this guy finally croaks? Well, it's not going to be someone like Alexei Navalny, uh, who's languishing in a heavy labor camp uh, right now. It's not, you know, Boris Nemtsov type, who was like a real opposition Democrat and was assassinated walking outside the Kremlin a few years ago. It's probably a person or people from around the military complex in Russia. It could be someone like Prigozhin, who is the founder and owner of the, the Wagner Group, which is this paramilitary mm. organization that has tens of thousands of well-trained troops that are doing some of the damage right now, uh, both on the ground in Ukraine, but also in Libya and Mali and other countries. It could be someone uh, like the Minister of Defense. Uh, it's not. Gonna, in other words, this is a, a Putin successor is not someone who is suddenly going to say, wow, we need to really open up to the Americans. We just got it all wrong. And if we could only find a way to engage with those good guys in the West, now that's, that, that's not the way they feel. They feel like the West has humiliated them intentionally for decades. So I remember when they had the, the vote in there in China with the weird thing where they came over and hustled that one old dude out of there. All that sort of the stuff. former president. Yeah you, yeah. you you tweeted out that she was now the most powerful person in the world. Explain that. Yeah. Well, I mean, China's the second uh, most powerful country in the world, second largest economy, uh, technologically, not quite at parity with the U.S., but close. Um, and Xi Jinping has surrounded himself only with loyalists. And that wasn't true when he became president 10 years ago. Uh, back then, there was a need for consensus building on policy. You had hardliners, you had technocrats, you had economic pragmatists, you had Shanghai faction. You had those that, you know, came up through the Beijing Communist Party apparatus. It's not true anymore. Uh, now it's basically you're supporting Xi Jinping. And the problem with that is he doesn't get the same level of information, doesn't benefit from the same level of internal policy debate. And that, that's how you can move from zero COVID to everybody gets COVID in a week. And the, and the Chinese aren't, aren't ready for it. Uh, it's because uh, they're not having these thoughtful coordinated debates. I mean, you know, China's 
always been authoritarian, um, but but it hasn't been a closed decision system in terms of policy leaders. Now it is. And that, of course, makes it a much greater risk on the global stage. You know, speaking of the zero COVID thing, it's it's so easy for those of us who are lovers of liberty to see the the least tremor in China and say, look at that resistance to the communists. Uh, how much trouble are they in over the the zero COVID shutdown, which cost them tremendous amounts of revenue, both going out and in? People don't tend to talk about that, but also caused a hell of a lot of resentment going forward. They might see millions die. How big a problem is this for the communists? Well, they won't see millions die uh, because they won't admit to it. So far, as of this morning, the Chinese government said that 37 people have died from COVID <laughs> in the last month. Wow. Um, which is, uh, I mean, maybe, who knows, maybe they're shooting them after they die from COVID. But it, there's not, it's ridiculous. It's ludicrous. It's not believable at any level. I mean, literally, you know, you've got some provinces where you've got 90% of the population that's gotten COVID in the past weeks. They're probably experiencing hundreds of thousands of deaths. It might be a million or more, uh, and they're just not going to talk about it. And, you know, the dead don't protest. So that's not going to be much of an issue. And all those people that did protest when they were angry and really fed up uh, with with zero COVID lockdowns, they weren't arrested, but they all got visits from local police. They were made to sign pledges that said that they understood that what they did was illegal. And if they did it again, uh, that there would be very serious consequences. They'd lose their jobs. They'd probably lose their liberties. And, you know, these were not professional activists. They weren't anarchists. They were just regular people that had enough. And they were pretty scared. Uh, I mean, we've spoken with some of them. They, They were surprised that the Chinese government was able to find them and track them down. They shouldn't be. It's a surveillance state. But they were. And so I I personally don't think that there's any meaningful threat to Xi Jinping or to Communist Party rule as a consequence of all these challenges they've had with zero COVID uh, going forward. Kind of a general question before we go back into the particular risks. Uh, How do you grade the the, the scariness of the world right now? I don't want to be guilty of presentism and, you know, ignore the fact that the world's always been kind of a scary place. But it seems particularly unsettled right now. Um. I think there are three different things to think about. Uh, The first is that democracies like the United States and Brazil and like in Europe are stronger and more resilient than people think. And everyone wants to panic and say, oh, my God, we could be an authoritarian state. It could be fascism. They've had their brains destroyed by four years of Trump, this kind of thing, or social media or watching too much cable. Um, That's overstated by a long margin. And that should make us feel much more comfortable about where we are, how we live, what the future bodes, um, compared to a lot of what we hear in the headlines. Um, On the other hand, we have all these issues I've just been talking about where things, especially from a guy like Putin with 6,000 nuclear warheads, I mean, there's a meaningful chance. It's not a high chance that we could see a nuclear war between Russia and Ukraine. I could launch a nuke, and then we could be fighting the Russians directly. I'm not saying it's a 50% chance, but it's at least a a 5% chance. Mm. That's higher than at any point since the Cuban Missile Crisis. So that's a, that's a horrible thing to think about. And then more broadly, um, you have the fact that 50 years of globalization where the world was getting wealthier and where a global middle class was getting bigger, we've now got 8 billion people on the planet. Uh, we just hit that mark a couple weeks ago, more than ever before. And yet a majority of the people on the planet are getting poorer. We have more people slipping into poverty more women slipping into the informal economy, more kids leaving school because of the pandemic, because of the high inflation, because of the Russia war, because of the supply chain challenges and because of climate change. 
And long term, we've got to do something to turn that around. That that is not sustainable. That's not a one year issue, but that's like a generational issue. We can't end up in this fundamental fragmentation between the West and the South. And that's right now where we're headed. Wow, you know, that actually reminded me of something I meant to ask about China, and that is, um, and again, this is more long-term than immediate, but China's demographic situation, the aging of their population, is astounding the more you look into it. Tell us about that. Well, it's the worst demographic trend of any major country ever in peacetime. Wow. They've got 1.4 billion people right now. Their population maxed last year, and excuse me, two years ago, 2022, and uh, they are heading towards the, the range of projections are between 900 million to 500 million by 2100. So, I mean, in other words, the population is going to go down by either a third to two thirds in wow. the course of in the course of a few generations. That is, uh, you know, you know, for so many years, we talked about the coming China century. Right. There's no sure. China century in that environment. You might have a China decade. You might have a China decade. It's not even clear that China is going to become the largest economy. It's possible they won't. But if they do, they're not going to maintain a dominant position at all for long. They can't because the population just won't allow it. It won't be there. They won't be able to grow uh, the way they will need. So in the United States, we deal with uh, low birth rates by importing plucky young Venezuelans and folks from uh, Central America and all over the world. Does China we have, have kids. we have some kids, you know, occasionally, but not enough. Get Bare, busy. Barely two point one per uh, woman. So that's yeah, oh, yeah. a lot, a lot more than in China is the point. Oh. Well, China would have to change fundamentally, though, to have any sort of uh, significant immigration, right? Well, first of all, when Xi Jinping took power 10 years ago, the first thing he did as a major policy was he got rid of the one-child policy, had no impact. Then he got rid of the two-child policy, had no impact. So that ain't working. So you're not, you're not getting Chinese women to have more kids. They refuse. Um, and, you know, especially as they get wealthier, um, you wouldn't expect that trend to change without massive economic intervention that China is not planning on doing. And it's, it's almost inconceivable that they would open up immigration in a way that would have a meaningful impact on that. The population is so culturally homogeneous. It's just, it's, it's almost inconceivable. That's fascinating. Okay, one more thing before we get to n- number three on the risk list, which I just blew my mind, but uh, the, back to the theme of loathsome regimes and how, uh, how rock solid they are. The protests in Iran, again, dramatic, moving, morally powerful. How significant? Um. Bigger than 2009, uh, all over the country, uh, but leaderless, very hard to shut down as a consequence, but not really much of a threat to creating a new regime. And so far, uh, the um, IGRC, the uh, the Revolutionary Guard Corps, um, has not been using um, anywhere near the level of violence that is available to them. Um, some have died, certainly, but I mean, we're not talking about like going in and just clearing out with with guns and, and heavy weapons, uh, except in the Kurdish region where they have done some of that, but not not as much of a problem for the regime as a whole. Uh, there's been no willingness to uh, to to in any way compromise on the way that headscarves are mandated or the way that the religious police can impose their will in unilateral and arbitrary fashion. 
so what you have is a regime that is run by an 83-year-old who's in not very good health, supported by the military, that's been kind of kicking the can and hoping that this is going to eventually stop, but there's de- willing to deal with this level of instability. At the same time, they're providing all the support to Russia, and they are getting closer to a nuclear weapon. Uh, and what that means is Iran's not likely to implode. Rather, we're getting closer to confrontation between Iran, Israel, the Saudis, the United States, um, in trying to prevent them from becoming a nuclear weapon state. Lovely. Something so, to look forward to. I've seen a bunch of different interviews with you on this this list, so uh, I know this one. One of the uh, one of the headlines was written for the first time by a robot or a bot or whatever. What's up with that? Yeah, my uh, my risk uh, was written by a bot. Uh, it was called <laughs> uh, "Weapons of Mass Disruption." We inputted the risk and we said, "What would you call this?" And that's what it came up with. I thought that was pretty good. I'm like, I can fire a bunch of my people. That's pretty cool. <laughs> um, so. You know, certainly the headline writers for the New York Post were not going to need those guys uh, going forward. But what the risk is about is that the United States, uh, you know, is creating these tools that actually really disrupt uh, democracy. And and we saw that. We saw that in Brazil uh, this weekend. You know, I mean, the same social media that allowed Trump uh, to build his popularity and uh, build, you know, conspiracy theories that made people really believe that the stolen and if they're patriots they should come out and support them and occupy the capital that's exactly the playbook that bolsonaro has been playing for the last year the only way he can lose is if it's rigged and he's using these algorithms on social media um to to uh, challenge democracy and the problem in the coming year um is that increasingly the power of these ai tools uh both to be used to create malware uh that will help cyber attacks and also to create bots that you and I can't tell aren't human beings. And the danger of that in terms of the ability to promote disinformation for elections around political movements and extremism, um, as well as the next time we have a GameStop meme stock Mm. episode and disrupting markets, we just never dealt with anything like this in democracies, and we're not ready for it. So it's a a pretty meaningful danger, and it's one that the, the companies are aware of, but their business models are aligned to maximizing engagement and data, which means that they really don't want to fix the problem. There are ways to fix the problem. You just verify everybody online, but they won't do that because it would destroy uh, their market cap. Yeah, I've got to admit that all of this stuff is so interesting, and, and we, we bow in appreciation to your expertise and the rest of it. But this section in particular just blew my mind. The idea that AI through its sheer you know productivity it can churn out so much content that the the bulk of the content is going to make it harder and harder to find the truth then you combine that with the algorithms for its distribution and tweaking people the way they want to be tweaked i mean truth seeking is going to become it it seems it's already hard oh yeah it seems like it's going to get damn near impossible and even even worse than that I think empathy seeking is going to become impossible because we treat we still treat human beings in a different way because we feel like, you know, we are they and, and they deserve a level of engagement and solicitousness and trust and all the rest. And suddenly when we can no longer determine 
who is a human being and who is a bot. Mm. It's not just we get fooled by bots and treat them like humans. It's also that we stop treating human beings like humans. We start treating them like bots. And that, you that ever, is you ever been on Twitter? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. But I'm, I mean, you know, if you think that's bad, that's nothing. That's nothing. Can we get the bots to argue with each other and then just lock them in a room and leave them alone? Or is that possible? Sure. <laughs> All the way down. I think that's a brilliant idea. You know, the problem is that they can, those bots can fucking multitask. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I was going to say, I don't give a crap about empathy, but uh, moving along. <laughs> um, no, so I, <laughs> so you, uh, yeah, I heard you say that you, you could, I don't argue with people on Twitter. I think that's a real waste of your time. But um, you could end up in an argument with someone, and it is a computer, and you don't know it, and that's coming this year? And that's coming this year. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I think that, I think that the advances, the people I talk to that are very involved in these new AI startups, one of whom is a founder uh, tells me that you know the Turing test will be fundamentally broken uh, sometime in the next 12 months, oh, God. meaning that you can no longer, with a 15-minute conversation between you and something online through text, not videos uh, yet, um, would not be able to distinguish whether that was a human being or not. Well, let me be the first to welcome our new robot overlords. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, the the Polish people, I think, are underappreciated in the United States. Maybe it's because I grew up in Chicagoland surrounded by uh, Polish Americans. But, I mean, the Poles have uh, endured horrors and hardships and shown courage, the likes of which we could t- t- only hope to imitate over the last century. And you cite the upcoming Polish parliamentary elections as a is a likely target of Russian aggressive interference, what would that look like? Well, because Poland, after the United States, is providing the most defense support for the Ukrainians, and they're on the front lines, and they're arguing for much sharper policies. They're the ones that want the U.S. to send uh, to do a no-fly zone, to send uh, you know advanced battle tanks. Um, and, uh, and, and and aircraft, uh, bombers, fighters, uh, into Ukraine to let them, like, actually take the war to Russia. I mean, this is massively escalatory stuff. But the Poles who have been housing millions of Ukrainians in their homes over the past year feel like if it wasn't for Ukraine, this war would be in Poland. And you'll remember that one uh, Ukrainian uh, air defense missile actually went mm-hmm. down in Poland after the Russians were uh, attacking border targets and killed two Polish farmers, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, they're part of the war. And, and uh, the response to that aggressiveness, the Russians have a very strong interest in doing what they can um, to undermine those in Poland that are trying to promote uh, that kind of uh, political argument. And so, yeah, I think that, uh, first of all, we've seen far more Russian cyber attacks against Poland than any other NATO state. Um, just a few weeks ago, they were engaged in all these attacks against logistical companies. Some were humanitarian, some were providing defense logistics, and suddenly they all got hit by Russian malware. I expect we'll see a lot more of that. Wouldn't surprise me if we see hits on pipelines, critical infrastructure in Poland, as well as espionage efforts. I mean, frankly, in the worst, you could even imagine assassination attempts. I mean, these are the kinds of things. You remember when the Iranians tried to kill John Bolton? Remember that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, they're hor- they're horrible at this stuff. The Russians are better at this stuff. So, I mean, it sounds spy versus spy and James Bond, but this is the position the Russians increasingly see themselves in. So you put a nuclear exchange at 5%. Or where do you put China invading Taiwan? 
for the next year? Oh, in the next year, functionally at zero. Okay, good. Uh, really? Yeah. Okay. I mean, yeah, long term, it's a threat. In 2024, there are Taiwanese presidential elections. If the Taiwanese were to uh, elect someone who supported independence, that would be a much greater risk scenario. But for now, Taiwan is so economically critical to both the Americans and the Chinese, we really don't want to fight over it. Um, here's a question. A guy like you, the first thing you do in the morning is probably uh, feed moose your dog. But after that, yeah. what, what, what do you well, check for? What's your first? Demanding little fuckhead. Yeah, <laughs> What's your first uh, choice to look at a headline? New York Times, Financial Times? I mean, where, where do you look first? Actually, believe it or not, uh, it's probably 30 minutes of in the background lis- listening to NPR Morning Edition while I'm going about my, my morning ablutions. Gotcha. Your morning I mean, ablutions. I, I just, I, it, it's, it's just such a tradition. I love radio. I like listening to, you know, the, to baseball on the radio. I'm, I just there's something about it that I, I find deeply relaxed. Oh, cool. You're aware of that they're liberals, thousands. Ian. They are what? liberals. They are? Yeah, as it turns out. <laughs> yes, they are, clearly. But my show's on PBS, for Christ's sake. And I had Steve oh, yeah. Bannon on. They didn't stop me. There you go. <laughs> well, hey, congratulations. I just saw 25 years in the Eurasia group. Um, yeah. And, and we we enjoy the How report every year. How long have you been doing Armstrong and Getty, huh? 30. Well, 25 years as the talk show, the Armstrong and Getty show. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're common law married in most states, I think. Yeah. God yeah. help us. Yeah. But anyway, it's always a pleasure. I wish we had time to talk about some of the other points like water stress, although the radio ranch is underwater currently now. So that's not going to be as top of mind for folks. But um, great to talk to you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But uh, let's do it again soon. Thanks a million. Whenever you want. Hey, great to talk to you guys. All right. Thanks. He wouldn't answer. uh, He didn't give me a straight answer on the uh, how scary the world is. Clearly dodging. That's because he's building, uh, you know, how people have a panic room. He's got a panic palace. 20 uh, stories underground, impenetrable, built entirely of titanium and diamonds. I go back and forth in this in my own mind, actually. Like, there's a new book out about uh, Reagan and the state of things between the United States and the Soviet Union in the 80s. And I read that and think, oh, yeah, 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 I don't remember that. Or I was too young to like fully appreciate it. Or you look at mm-hmm. 1968 or whatever. On the other hand. People like Henry Kissinger, who's been around 100 years, say this is unsettled now since World War II on the global yeah, stage. So, uh, Yeah, and I think he would, Ian would agree, and he made reference to this, that your rogue states of the past could stir up some pretty serious shit, but they didn't have nuclear weapons like Iran's going to have in a cup of coffee or so. Oh, crap. And, you know, North Korea, I, I'm convinced North Korea is overrated as a global threat, honestly. Dopey little hermit kingdom. All he does is generate, you know, noise so that he can tell his, his people, look, we're under threat. Keep me as your dictator and then try to find a grain of rice to eat. Um, but, you know, some of these other regimes, they definitely heighten the tension. Or, Pakistan, you know, talk about underrated regimes for, for instability. Pakistan, and they goodness have sakes. They're hanging by a thread, mm-hmm. that government. Anyway. Extra large. No one likes to talk about money. Am I saving enough? Can I buy a house? Am I paying too much in taxes? Will I be able to retire? What if you could unlock insights about your finances in less than five minutes with a clear picture of where you stand today and where your money can work harder? 
Now you can. Visit facet.com to take the free quiz and get your financial wellness score today. That's F-A-C-E-T.com. This ad is sponsored by Facet. Facet Wealth Incorporated is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. What's out there is unknown. So at UC San Diego, out we go. Because to take on the challenges of the here and now, you got to get your feet wet, your eyes open, and your mind out there. Way out there. Turning the unknown into cures, culture, and connections with each step forward. So pack a bag, a notebook, and some sandals and get ready to look far and think further. UC San Diego. Learn more at ucsd.edu.